0: Judgment Studios. If you look at the people around you right now, you may be amazed to learn that in your midst, there lives a secret but parallel community of mothers, fathers, children, old folk, people of all walks of life. In fact, this secret community secret community doesn't just live next to us or besides us it is us but so often this community my community is invisible shun hidden we are the legions of people both affected by mental health issues as well as the family and support that our loved ones interact with and this community often feels like we're shouting over a gulf we can never cross. And a while ago, after speaking about some of the challenges my own family faced, I got to speak to a range of people coming from very different perspectives, addressing a condition near and dear to my own heart, schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. And we created a brand new project. It's called Unseen and Unheard. Today, I can't wait for you to hear just one of the discussions I got to have with some brand new friends, Swiya and Dedrick. Snap Judgment.
1: My husband does it good. He listens to me. And I think that's one one reason why we was able to make it through, because he did listen. So i say the biggest thing for anybody that has a mental illness is to listen to him.
0: When two people commit themselves to each other, they can never be fully prepared for the obstacles their relationship will face they can never truly know how they will react in tandem to life's most challenging storms. In the case of Suya and her husband, Dedrek, their bond was tested early by a condition that everyone thought was under control.
1: I went to college. I have a BA degree in psychology. And I've never thought in a million years that I could have a diagnosis as a schizophrenia um, I was just a normal person. I mean, a little weirdness here and there, but basically uh, all around, I was a normal person. Suya is a writer whose
0: condition inspired her to write two books so far. Her schizophrenia first presented itself about eight years before she and Dedrick met.
1: The stress started to get me. I, I started, I got a job out of school, straight out of school. I got a job in the mental health field and it was stressful. Oh my God. So it was really tough. And that's when I started getting headaches every day. And I see that as a sign of a breakdown. Headaches every day for six months. I was laying down and I remember looking up in the sky, and there's a face. It was transparent, no color. And it. It was a serious face, a male's face, and then it opened his mouth, and I turned away. I didn't want to look at the face. it was scary, and my mom took me to the hospital. I got there, and it was a it was a psychiatrist, a nurse, and a social worker. they was all sitting there and the psychiatrist said well you you have the diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. I'm like, no, no way i you know I was like, I dress well, keep my hair up, keep myself up, I'm educated. There's no way I have a diagnosis of schizophrenia. No way.
0: Lots of folks assume that schizophrenia can't be happening to a person who's educated, who's organized, and on top of things. But Swea soon learned otherwise.
1: And only way I could leave the hospital was to take the medication. So I took it for a little while and left the hospital. Uh.
0: You took the medication. Did it stabilize you for a little bit? Do you remember
1: how it worked on you? It stabilized me for a little bit, but I was still talking fast. And then when I got in my mom's car, I thought to take me home. She said, oh, no, you're not fully okay. But she took me home. And then I started to get sick again because I didn't continue taking the medication because I thought, I don't have schizophrenia. Uh, so I remember seeing uh, what looked like a ghost, a woman with uh, a dress at the bottom. It was It was burnt. Like she died by fire and I just got back right in it again.
0: Could you talk to your mother about what you were seeing?
1: During that time, I really wasn't telling anybody what I was going through. She said that I was the most normal child she had and she had seven kids. So she couldn't understand like what is going on. And she just she just took me. I was out of my mind and she grabbed my hand and took me to the hospital again. So the, the first time I relapsed, I went to the hospital two times then in 2003, I believe it was two times. And then in 2006, it was maybe two to four more times.
0: OK, so back then when you would get medication, would you take it?
1: While I was in the hospital? Yes, I would take it. And then when I leave the hospital, I would. But in 2006, that's what the doctor said. If you come back here, I'm going to commit you. So I just decided to keep taking it. It made me, it slowed me down and helped me to think clear. It did work.
0: When it worked for you, did you then accept the diagnosis of schizophrenia? Yes. Was there anything that you, any positives that you got from it? The first
1: time, yes. The first time um, was very spiritual. Um, for example, it felt like it felt like somebody was controlling my thoughts. And it said, forgive yourself. Mm. And so I would have a lot of spiritual awakening through the mental illness, which no not too many people talk about. When I first got sick and was refusing the medication, I did not want to realize, come to the the conclusion that I had a mental illness. So I didn't want to go to a, a, a hospital. And I remember the first time I went to the psychiatrist and I said, you know, he saw me. He saw me, uh, and came out and said, you're beautiful. You're just mentally exhausted. It's okay to take medication. And ever since that experience, I've been fine. I've been fine taking it. I've been able to share my story. But before that, no, I didn't want nobody to know.
0: So one person giving you permission to be yourself Yes. Is what gave you that, that courage, that permission to lean into who you are?
1: It was amazing. He's a psychiatrist. He actually talked to me, you know, I just sat down and held my hand and talked to me like, whoa, people don't do this. You know, he actually sat down with me and, and talked to me and, whoa, it was a huge thing. It was huge. Mm. So
0: you're in the middle of this, you've just been hospitalized and you decide you're going to write a book.
1: Yes. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, 2003, I came home. I said, you know, I need to write, I need to write a book. People got to know about this. I won awards in high school for writing uh, essays and things like that. But I would, I did little cartoon books to play when I was a young girl. I never thought I would write a book, though. Never did. It was so much that happened that was spiritual. I had to write it down because it was unbelievable. Like, whoa.
0: I mean writing books is hard. How do you get yourself together to do that?
1: Writing is natural for me. If it's something that is really important and can help a lot of people, then I pursuit pursue the writing. I don't just write anything. It has to be something that can help.
0: And that's pretty remarkable from my perspective. Thank um you. <laughs> What's the name of your book?
1: It's called Don't Call Me Crazy, I'm Just in Love. And then it's Don't Call Me Crazy Again, Part 2.
0: So you got you got a sequel to this book. Yes. And because you don't want nobody calling you crazy.
1: Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm intelligent. I am,
0: obviously. <laughs> I <ain't>
1: crazy. <laughs> yes, I'm intelligent.
0: Setting her diagnosis aside, Sui has always had a special take on life and her own particular flair. It's one of the things that most impressed her husband right from the get-go. Who were you, actually, the day before you met Deedrick? Dedrick.
1: Man, I was together. I was, man, I was going to bookstores, putting my book in stores. I was, I had my book on Amazon. I, I was um, speaking here and there. I was uh, calling people up and, and you know, they had an event and I would speak at the event. I mean, oh man, I had it together. And then I met Dedrick. He was very handsome. Very handsome, man. Then we started hanging out. Wasn't really dating, but we were just hanging out. And I really enjoyed his company. So when
0: you met him, you had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia.
1: Yes. When yes. did
0: that come up?
1: So I believe he knew because I
0: promote my books. But you didn't have any secrets on that level from him?
1: Oh, no. I never heard it from anybody.
0: Dedrick, today is... In a word, devoted. And he has been ever since he met Suya. When he thinks of that moment, he recalls her openness and her passion. He was smitten.
2: She did outreaches in the community where she would give her story and she would go over everything. What year did you meet her? Uh, It was like around 2011, something like that, I think. So
0: you'd met her. She hadn't had a break for a while. She's not experiencing any breaks during the time that you're courting and things are going well between you two. You proposed to her.
2: Yes, it got to that point um, because in my heart, I realized that I couldn't make her mine until what I believe she, she received the source of the love that I was sharing. And once it did, then I was able to make her mine, and then then you know the proposal came. It's on YouTube. I you know I said I wanted to make her you know something she can look back and remember. You know I didn't have a bunch of money, but I, I tried to use the the resources that I had available. And so you know I made a, I made a little movie called engagement, and um I did a little pre thing before you know talking about it, and she looked at me, and I got on the knee, and I asked her that forever forever question. And because I realized that she's the kind of woman that I do not want to walk away from, you know. And so when I asked her that question and, and she said, yes, you know, I felt like, you know, a piece of my destiny was fulfilled. And, uh, you know, and I, I knew I mean, I seen her present her her condition, her history, you know, numerous of times, you know, um, at direct centers, at the library, at schools. Most of the time I was her camera guy there so I'm like you know I kind of understood what was going on but I, I never seen it only heard it and when was
0: the first time that you felt I'm seeing this
2: disease and not my wife well the first time I seen it the challenge I like to call it a challenge because it's something she gets to address and overcome every day and I watch her. I didn't realize how much she's she's been overcoming it until I saw it, where she had to, like, really grab it and handle it. The first time was uh, when we decided that we was going to try to have a baby. And she mentioned that, you know, it could be challenging because of her condition.
0: What did you think when you heard
2: that? When I heard that, then I said, OK, well, let me know if you really want to do it. She said, well, I love you. And I want you to be happy. And I want a family.
0: And, and at this time, she is off of her medication.
2: Correct.
1: I decided not to take any medication because I was thinking that there was some uh, more natural, healthy products that could help me. But I don't know why I even thought that. But um, I got off the medication. Dedrick, before the
0: birth, are you seeing her in a different light? Are you seeing aspects of the condition that are coming out that you weren't familiar with?
2: No, because she told me everything. It was like a taint beast. It's like a beast that know, you know, I need help. It wasn't like, I'm going to knock everything down and destroy everything. I'm going to poke you in your eye. It was not an angry monster. I'm something you don't understand. I'm not a monster. I'm a situation that needs certain support systems to be able to sustain myself.
0: After the birth of Swee and Dedrick's daughter, however, Swee's symptoms of schizophrenia seriously intensified. Well, Swee, tell me about this. You, you give birth to a child that is in the Nikyo.
1: Right. I was having the baby early. I was like a month early. I mean, it was horrible. The doctor told me to rest. I go home and then I get a call from a CPI investigator the next day. And so eventually the courts got involved and they, they took my child from the hospital without me mean, even knowing it. It just took her. And uh, I broke down.
0: Oh my God. How long after the birth do you find out that someone has taken your baby?
1: Maybe about um baby was born in June, so around July, they took her. They just took her. And I just <clears throat> I broke down, uh, just left and slept in my car for a week. I was gonna think I thought about divorce.
0: You're um living out of your car right after the birth of the child. Yes. Contemplating a divorce with your husband. Yes. What is your psychological state? Can you tell us like what are you thinking? Do you remember?
1: When I was in that car for a week, I mean, it may sound crazy, but I was, I was playing my music. I was happy. I was driving around. The uh, stress was off me. I was just to myself. It was different. But when I, when I got to the hospital.
0: How did you get to the hospital?
1: I went home, kept feeling depressed. And then so I finally said, I need medication.
0: Who did you say it to?
1: my husband. He tried to take me to the hospital and that's when he first saw the real breakdown.
2: That's when it started.
0: Our conversation continues in just a moment, Snappers. Stay tuned. Back to Snap Judgment, the unseen and unheard episode. We're in the middle of a very intimate, real life conversation with a remarkable couple. Snap judgment. You, you have this situation going on. You find out that your baby has been taken to a foster care situation. Your wife tells you to fix it, and she she leaves. And you're saying this is the point
2: your wife breaks? Yeah, because she told me to do something about it. And there was nothing I can do. And that's when she got in the car and she just went for the ride. She's in her car going for a ride. I just had to sit there. I had to sit home, you know, and pray that everything's okay.
0: Are you having any contact with your wife when she initially takes off driving? Do you recognize that she is having a break? You've never seen this aspect of her condition before. What are you thinking when this happens?
2: Well, Well, when it first happened, I was thinking, man, what do I do? And I remember what she said in in the training. She said, you find out what the person needs you to help them or find someone who they trust that will help them. So I called her mama. Because she always mentioned how her mom was, you know, there for her. And her mom would say, do this, do that, Dedrick. I was like, okay. So I did the things that she was coaching me to do. And it helped to a point, she said, because those are things that she can do even in that state.
0: So you felt that she gave you a game plan for dealing with, with her unfolding condition
2: in that moment. You felt like she had prepared you for it? kind of like when somebody give you instructions for a tornado i mean you know what you what what the options are but now actually manifesting those options during the tornado when everything is blowing around going crazy mm. trying to remember what to do and trying to do those things those simple instructions can seem devastating to you and uh but i was able to you know just the, the support i felt you know in my heart it helped me you know, knowing that I I have to be here for my wife, I have to be here for my daughter, you know, and I have to be here to be a bridge to help them to connect while she's going through this, you know. And then, but I have to stay, you know, available and mentally sane too. How did that make you feel? I didn't even think about my feelings. I just thought about okay, if this to help us accomplish our goal, let's do it. I realized that I'm I had to really be the foundation.
0: Do you feel like? The authorities are dealing with you in a special kind of way because you're poor, because you're Black, or because she's mentally ill. What is driving some of these decisions?
2: I would have to say all of the above. Um, I don't think that any people with funds would have had to went through what I went through. Because they would have been able to afford a lawyer who can say, these charges are bogus how can you say somebody's homeless and use this as a platform when you submit a subpoena to their apartment when they show you the lease? They made me take a mental evaluation test. Said something must be wrong with me because I won't divorce my wife. My wife has never been violent. She don't have no history of violence. So I figured that part was probably because I'm a black man.
1: I got to the hospital and gave me a shot. During that time, I was probably hospitalized like six times. I kept, the medication wasn't strong enough, so I kept going back. Where is your baby girl this whole time? They put her in this home, put her in this foster care home. I
0: don't have your condition, but I would be losing my own stuff Mm -hmm. if someone came and got my baby out of a hospital.
1: That's what a lot of people say. My husband says that too. I mean, even if you didn't have a mental illness, you would be you break down.
0: Is this a locked facility or is this are you free to leave at any time?
1: No. All of them, the lock facilities can't couldn't get out and that was really devastating. You know, because you feel like a prisoner, you're angrier.
0: Who did you think was on your side when you were inside?
1: My husband. Sometimes. Cuz he would come every day. I really needed that. That makes a big difference because you don't feel like you're all by yourself.
0: You finally feel that you are getting the right amount of medication and you are actually taking the medication you're getting.
1: Yeah, I feel really. Oh, my God. I feel really good. I'm um, really good. Yeah, the right medication. Finally.
0: What did you do Mm -hmm. to get your daughter back?
1: We had to keep going to court. They would come in my apartment and then they would um check my medication, make sure I'm taking it. <laughs> and then they gradually let us they moved her, the baby from a, a foster care to my aunt's, and that was better because she's closer. And then gradually they let my baby stay with me. So it was a gradual process. And then finally we got her back after about a year.
0: And what was your relationship with her like? Was she bonded to you?
1: She yeah, she was bonded. I mean, I remember going to the car to, to get her. And she get excited and try to take off her seatbelt. So I was like, wow, she really knows I'm mama. She really knows.
2: So, okay.
0: So your, your wife comes back. Do you feel like you can Talk to her, what's your relationship like?
2: Oh, we was talking we was talking it was It was good. it was great. it was great. <laughs> are
0: you meeting a different side of her now from the schizophrenia situation? How are you dealing with her? Her mental health issues coming having just come back from the hospital for the first time since you all have had a relationship?
2: I realized that my wife needed more tenderness for me and things that she can have confidence in in certain areas of her life when it come to me. Like she know, like boom. I showed up every day at the hospital, no matter where she was. And when she was at the hospital for 30 days, they let me come every day. They, the doctor gave me a note so I can go see her early. And I was just there. Sometimes she didn't even come out of her room. I just sat there and waited on her. I said, "What? I'm just waiting. When you're the
0: caretaker, how does it impact your relationship as a husband?
2: It gives you hope. It gives you strength when you feel like, you know, second guessing anything. You don't even, it don't even get to that platform. It just goes to a place of like, wow, I get a chance to love this person who's loving me. Like, man, this is a privilege, man. This is my family. It's mine. I ain't crazy for it. I can laugh about it. It's mine. I'm gonna fight for it with every breath I got. Just like she made a commitment to taking her medication to being a good steward over herself, I I made a commitment to assisting her because I found out through my research as as dad, as a husband, I'm supposed to be the foundation. And so me being the husband, the dad, I'm the foundation of the family. And that revelation gave me strength to say, okay, I don't want to crack.
0: One final question before I bring your wife back on board. You have been serving as you mentioned that foundation. Where where are you getting your support from?
2: From them. Will you love on somebody? And you see that look in their face? And you see that they really receiving it and they value what you're releasing? Man, you Superman, man. You, look at you. I'm willing to put on a mask for my family. And I'm willing to put on a cape for my family. Where's Sway? She right here. I'm here. All right. I just
0: love the dynamic in your relationship. I love that you guys take turns with who's got strength now. It's all about, you know, having made that commitment and this is now this, this us situation going on. How does this
1: work for you all? It's definitely us now. We are working more as a team. And um, that's something we didn't do in the past.
0: If someone gave you the chance, like, suppose, like, I don't know, right now, to tell your husband how best he can support you and how best he has. Could you say that to him right now?
1: Yes, he's doing it. It's listening, listening to me. One reason why we was able to make it through because he did listen. But I was having a hard time in the hospital because they're like, you're just crazy. You're crazy. You you don't know what you're talking about. You You don't need to know what medication it says. You don't need to know none of this. We're the experts. So, I say the biggest thing for anybody that has a mental illness is to listen to them.
0: What what is schizophrenia to you right now?
1: Schizophrenia is the genius part of me. (laughs) That's what I would say. It's the genius part, and it's my life now. It's me. It didn't become me until I started telling my story. I revised anybody, I mean, tell, share your stories, everybody. Tell, share your stories. Uh, once I started sharing my story, it became part of my life. I decided to start having workshops. I decided to start doing interviews and do as much as I can to get the word out about schizophrenia, about mental illness. We plan on doing a documentary and we're going to keep, keep pushing, keep getting the word out. And, uh, hopefully we can reach a lot of people.
0: You mentioned that schizophrenia is the genius part of you. Dedrick, how does that come out? How does the genius part come out
2: to you? How do you see it? Even when she had a break, it was always questioning, like, what if? Every genius say, what if? The Rice Brothers said, what if? The people who created The light bulb said, what if Tesla said, what if now schizophrenia is a person getting stuck in the what if not getting to the then model of the dynamic of the question. And I saw through this challenge with my wife, her get stuck. I mean, she would sit up nights. When we, when the thing happened in the beginning, trying to find things to support what's going on with the court system and stuff, she was like, "Well, if this, if this, if this, if this, it was a, it was an if loop." And the genius, the spark of genius, I've noticed starts with if. It's the beginning of being available to to think something more, to do something more, and to be something more. And it takes a genius to to be available.
0: Mm. Tell me about your daughter now.
1: She's a blessing.
0: What do you like about being a mother?
1: I like to see change. I like to see growth, and it's exciting. Like when she say her ABCs and seeing her grow and advance. That's exciting.
0: What perspective do you think that your mental health condition brings to your motherhood?
1: I don't want her to go through what I went through. So it's like, when I see her do something, I try to ask, what's, what's this? Because it looks look like you're suffering. You know, I'd be thinking, well, "What if she suffers from mental illness too, what, what can I do to help her? You know, I'd be thinking.
0: Can you describe how you, your partnership and how you raise your child?
1: We, we have the same ideas, same ideas of how to raise a child. It's the same. So that that's a blessing. That's a big blessing.
2: I wanted a family ever since I was in the third grade. It's like I was always looking for the one, you know, the one that that I was gonna receive assistance when it comes to loving them the way they need to be loved.
0: So far, the undeniable love between Swee and Derrick has been a secret kryptonite against so much chaos. And while it can't magic away Suya's illness, their bond forges the strength and the tools to overcome that challenge day after day. Suya and Dedrick's baby is well on her way through the Tyler years. And the couple vows to keep sharing their story as long as there are people to listen and people to heal. What do you both think your future looks like now?
1: I think our future is definitely wealth. Our future is of touching people's hearts, touching the world. It's just greatness is coming. It's here already. It's here. It's here.
0: Thank you, thank you, thank you, Sweya and Dedrick. This story was produced by PRX Productions, Jason Gonzalez, Ian Fox, with writing by Sarah Lilly, and engineering by Tommy Bazarian, with assistance. From our own Marissa Dodge, and this project was underwritten by Janssen Pharmaceuticals. Yes, there are more conversations. Just dial in, unseen and unheard, on your podcast app. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to tell you the truth about my brother about myself, when Snap Judgment returns. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the unseen and unheard episode. My name is Clem Washington, and we have saved you the very best seat in the house before a sellout crowd of snappers at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Snap Judgment, live. Sunday night and I'm sitting there not exactly waiting but it is in the air the phone rings 11 15 it's too late to be anybody else I pick up to screaming. I ain't even <laughs> had nothing to eat man where are you I ain't even <laughs> had to eat where are you the phone goes dead 702 area code he's in Vegas I get on the plane in a few hours I'm on the strip and I don't know this place I don't have a plan look at people in the eye and I can't help but think this isn't right he wouldn't be here too many lights Mountains, faces, on the script there's a Denny's. I go in, order up a Grand slam, and this pretty white lady, she's looking at me, so I ask her, I say, if you were homeless here, where would you go? She thinks about it, and she says, you might want to try the library downtown. And I remember the emails, rows and rows of the letter B. Threats, rants about the color blue. You've gotta be writing them from somewhere. The lady says, uh, good luck finding your friend. Good luck. I wanna weep. I go to the library and start checking the rows of computer bags. And then I ask the librarian if she minds if I check out the computer logs. And she says, yeah. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I do mind. But then it doesn't matter. I see him. Walks in looking dirty and thin, but it's him. And we don't do Hallmark Moments. I go over to him, he says, when'd you get in? <laughs> I just got here. Uh-huh. You told me you were hungry on the streets. Nah, <laughs> nah, I ain't say that. Okay. Well, let's go for a ride. So we get in the ride get in the car and head out to the strip. And Caesar's Palace promises a very special dining experience. So we wind our way through the casino and we tear up this buffet. Shrimp, lobster, steak, it's delicious, and he's eating with his cheeks bulging, his fingernails black, Three years previous, he was king of the world, a bond trader in Tokyo. Then he started hearing the voices. And I know I've got to get him out of here. I know I've got to get him some help. Maybe there's some medicine. He polishes off his last bit of prime rib and pushes back, smiles with his eyes. I hit the spot, yo. We walk out under Caesar's electric sky, and he says, so, what brings you to Vegas? Your black ass brings me to Vegas. What are you talking about? You need to come back with me to California. Wish I could. Why can't you? Wish I could. Why can't you? Some kids fake scream in front of a magic shop. Why can't you come back with me? And his side starts spasming and he looks at me scared, really, really scared. And his body, his entire body is shaking and he says, because the spirit say so. And these invisible demons, they lift his chest up and down like a marionette, and him sprinting down the corridor away from me. And outside, he's waiting. He says, I know what you're thinking, but you know I think that's the scariest shit I've ever seen. Sometimes they got to punish me. They got to do that. Look, man, I understand, maybe you're tired. You can sleep in the back of the car. When you wake up, we'll be in California. His eyes rolled back in his head. They said, no. A muscular, short man in boxing shoes, boxing shirt, boxing shorts, he rolls up and chest bumps my friend and holds a boxing glove out to me. Nice to meet you. He punches in the direction of some people who are giving us some odd looks. People gotta know who they're dealing with. And walking behind this boxer and my friend, I can't help but marvel. He always had a crew, always pulled a posse. Even now, beset by Unseen Demons. He's got this guy who's hanging on his every nonsensical word. And punching staccato to the beat. Because now he's a rapper. Now he wants to rap. He's got this rap going. Wanna keep me him duck. Wanna call me a criminal. My mind steady spinning to rhyme subliminal. And the boxer kick Left, right, jazz. And me behind to keep up. They find another buffet. The boxer puts a fork in each of his boxing gloves, (laughs) and he starts gobbling at a pace that matches my friend. They say that sometimes the boxing coach lets them hang out in the gym overnight, otherwise they find a patch of ground somewhere. Look. You can stay with me tonight, but I have to leave in the morning. You should come. Man, you still don't get it, do you? I'm Joe. This is my trial. My reward will surpass any hardship. Maybe, man. Maybe your mind's playing tricks on you. At the hotel, he pulls his hoodie up over his head, curls up on the ground, and goes to sleep. I leave the room and call the cops. The man says, uh, yeah, so um, is, he, is he violent? And I, I think about it. In a lot of ways, he's the opposite of violent. It's childlike. No, he's not violent. Well, well then I'm sorry, there's, there's nothing we can do. Nothing they can do. In the morning, I put some money on the dresser, and he wakes up. He sees me, and he writes on a piece of paper, folds it up, hands it to me. Everything you need to know is right there. I open it up, and it's uh, squiggles and lines, it's gibberish. Man, you sure? He nods, smiles, says, Good luck to me. Good luck. I hug him hard this time. Real hard. So hard. Then I walk away. Leaving my best friend in Vegas. And we go on together And there's no such thing as the ending to a story Because stories do not end But if you know someone Who needs storytelling in their lives Someone close to you Someone maybe even not so close to you Do this Snatch up their phone Subscribe them to the Snap Judgment podcast Each one helps one The gift of love That's how we do Snap Judgment Snap was brought to you By the team that always picks up on the first ring Except, of course, from Mark Ristich, talking about he don't believe in technology. There's Anna Sussman, Nancy Lopez, Pat Messini-Miller, Regina Badiaco, David Exame, Renzo Gorio, Shayna Sheely, Taylor Decot, Flo Wiley, John Fasile, Marissa Dodge, Davy Kim, Bo Walsh, and Annie Nguyen. My name is from Washington, and this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact... You could tell the world exactly what you're feeling inside. And instead of being met with rejection and revulsion, you could receive love and respect. Think about that. Even then, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is, but this is PRX.